0: Welcome to the Hearsay Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, awkward, was recorded live at Inside Out Gallery in Traverse City, Michigan in November 2015. In our first story, a cooking mishap at a friend's wedding made for a rather uncomfortable reception for Janelle Bowers.
1: So, I have a couple of bad social habits. Um, One of them is that I have never been able to grasp that, like, inside jokes should stay inside and that other people don't, like, get what the hell you're talking about. Um, And the other is that I'm, like, drastically overly optimistic. So I kind of – I never approach a situation thinking, like, I can't do that or that's too hard – so what it leads to is me kind of boasting my skills when uh, they aren't really there at all. So you can imagine my um, new acquaintances' confusion when she's talking about her recent—she, uh, her and her her husband eloped to to Mexico and they're they're planning a wedding reception that's fiesta themed. And I say, "Oh, you may not know this about me, but my soul is my cooking soul is that of an abuelita." And she looks at me like I'm fucking crazy. She has no idea what I'm talking about because that's an inside joke between me and my ex-husband. She has no idea that what I'm saying is that I, for a white lady, make some really badass carnitas. And so um she asks me what I'm talking about. And I say, Oh, it's you know, oh, sorry, it's a joke. Uh, I just I make really good Mexican food, and she gets this look of excitement over her face and says, Would you help me cook? And I say, my overly optimistic self. I say, sure, I would love to help you cook. And so I get the the wedding invitation in the mail a, a couple of, of months later and she asked me, "Are you are you still willing to help? And I say, sure, I'd love to. I'm making the assumption that I'm not going to be like the only one cooking. I am imagining like a plethora of family and friends there. It's going to be a group effort. But when she calls me the day before and says, so what's the game plan for tomorrow? (laughs) Um, I go, oh, oh, okay. Uh, So she's asking for a menu. And so I I rattle off the things that she'll need for, for the carnitas that need to cook for a really long time. She's a totally good sport about it. She goes to the Mexican store. She gets the meat. She takes it home. She lets it sit and cook for the six or eight hours that it needs to. I show up at the designated time the next day, 3 p.m. Now, there's a reason that people hire professionals to do these things. Um, I've cooked these dishes for, like, five people, but not, like, 70 people. So you also need, like, equipment, right, to cook for 70 people. Um, You don't just, like, willy-nilly in, like, some little-ass kitchen at this lady's house, like, cook for 70 people. So I get there and... I'm not a caterer, so I didn't even think to ask, like, do you have the right stuff? So luckily, minus counter space, she has most everything that I need to make the salsa verde, the guacamole. The meat's already cooking, it's on two uh, crock pots here. She doesn't, however, have the, the large rolled baking, aluminum baking dish that I need to roast the tomatillos under, under the broiler. But she says, I have these Pyrex pans. I say, okay, fine, that'll work. I'm resourceful. So I, I cut them up. I start roasting things. I'm, I'm prepping some other stuff. The, the meat, the liquid hasn't evaporated off the way that it needs to, and so I take the lids off. I have here very small counter space. Here I have uh, carnitas. Liquid is evaporating off. Here I have a, a, a food processor that I'm making salsa in. Um, I pull the dish out of the broiler, and I'm holding it by one end, and I'm scraping downward with a rubber spatula when suddenly a loud pop happens. Now, Gwen and Dan and their lovely selves are busying themselves getting ready for this party as well. They're in these beautiful white outfits that they wore on the beach in Mexico, and they turn around and they say, what was that? And I said holding one large shard that was the handle of the pyrex dish looking at the glass that is just broken in all of the food for 70 people that are set to show up in an hour and a half we're in grayling michigan which means that if i like needed cilantro i couldn't get it like i can't like i cannot I can't replicate this like unless we're going to feed them wings like we're <laughs> fucked. I mean there's I I have to fix this food and so after a rapid like oh fuck 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 I I can't believe that just happened. I I stop, and I assess the situation, and I realize that the shards of glass have fallen into liquid. So they haven't, like, broken into teeny tiny shards of glass. There's just, like, mostly large chunks of broken glass, right? So the other major problem is that they have fall. These chunks of glass are 500 degrees, and they've fallen into food that's been cooking for six hours. So I go, okay, all right. We can get these big chunks out. This is going to be okay. Nothing is fucked here. It's fine. I start picking up the big chunks of glass frantically and not paying attention. I'm throwing it into a trash can. And as I'm doing that, I look down and there's blood running down my arm. And I, for a moment, want to cry just a little bit. (laughs) But I don't. And Dan and Gwen are, like, drastically calm about this whole situation. Like, internally, I'm going, what are you talking about? Like, you think I should feed your guests bloody glass-laden food? Like, what, are, what do you mean? So I get a Band-Aid, and I wash my hand, and I, I decide that, okay, I'm going to make the guacamole. I'm going to turn the food off. I'm going to cool it down. I'm going to go through it with a sieve and get all the pieces of glass out. And I do that. I get all the glass out. I run the salsa through a food processor so that, you know, it would make this horrible grinding noise if there was chunks of broken glass in it, right? And so I get all the food out. I clean the kitchen. I lay everything out. Guests start to show up. I go outside and just sob. Sob. Like this is the worst cooking situation that's ever happened in my life, and so I kind of get my shit together, and I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna drink a beer, and I'm just, I'm gonna be fine. I'm just gonna hang out in the corner, I'm gonna mind my own business, I'm gonna get through this wedding reception, then I'm gonna leave. And I go and get my plate of food, which I'm picking at with a fork, <laughs> looking for glints of glass, and and everybody's complimenting the food. They're they're going up to Gwen and Dan. They're like, oh, this is amazing, and and they're saying. Oh, Janelle, she did a great job. And they're coming up to me and saying, Chef, and I'm in my mind, I'm like knocking the food out of their hand, going, don't fucking eat that. You're eating bloody shards of glass. Stop now. Stop. (laughs) Oh. And as I'm talking to people, these, like, flashes of things like perforated bowel are, are like, the only, they're, they're saying these really nice things to me, and that's all I can think. And... And I'm picturing news headlines that say a rash of wedding reception attendees have gone to the hospital this evening with, with lacerated esophaguses. And I I sit in the corner and I try to mind my own business, but they just keep coming up to me because it's greatly and they're really friendly. <laughs> and and I I get through the wedding reception and it's the worst cooking situation that could ever happen, Um, you know glass and blood and all Um, but what I realized is that awkward happens when we boast our skills more than we maybe should (laughs) thank you
0: Our next story, Larry Heitman, was a bit of an awkward, teased teenager until a teacher helped him boost his popularity.
2: When I was six, I had polio. And uh, I was out of commission for about a year and a half. And my mother homeschooled me, and she brought in a tutor once in a while to kind of keep me up to speed. So when I finally got my braces off, uh, I slid right into the regular grade, which I would have been in, which was third grade. But I was wobbly, awkward, I guess you could say. And I was the skinniest kid in the school. So I got teased. Larry, don't stand sideways. <laughs> we can't see you. That was kind of clever. Or my favorite one was, you can't go out on recess, Larry. Larry. It's too windy. You'll need an anchor. Well, that I thought was clever. Not bad. Then I wore uh, glasses, thick, heavy glasses, Coke bottle variety. So I got, hey, four eyes. That's real clever, fella. You can do better than that. <laughs> yeah, um, but when I got into eighth grade, I got acne. I mean, really bad. Girls called me fish face. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, (laughs) I I never could really make the connection between acne and fish face. But I can tell you one thing I was not about to ask. But then things kind of started to level out a little bit. Uh, My mother brought this preparation stuff in a tube. And every night... I'd put it on my face. The next morning, I'd wipe it off. I continued this for about a year and a half. When I got into 10th grade, the acne disappeared pretty close. I mean, I had zits, but all the kids had those. That wasn't that bad. And uh, my dad, he was really thin when he was a kid. And he built a weight bench, and uh, it was in the basement. One day he said, Larry, let's go downstairs and dust off my old weight bench and get some muscle tone on you. I said, Yeah, that sounds good. And then I had a paper out to uh, build up my legs, you know. He said, After you deliver your papers, uh, stop by the ice cream shop and get yourself a milkshake and put a little meat on your bones. I said, Yeah, that sounds good. I used to see this optometrist, Dr. Seth. I saw him about once a year, and uh, he said, Larry, your eyes are actually getting better. And he said, "Uh, we can make lenses thinner, too, plastic, new technology. So I said, yeah, that sounds good. And then he said, do you know who Buddy Holly is? I said, Buddy Holly? You mean the rock and roll singer? Yeah, you know him? I said, yeah, I know. I like his music. He said, well, he's tall and thin like you are. And uh, in fact, you look a little bit like him. And he said, these uh, frames, they don't do you justice. He said, you would really look good in a pair of Buddy Holly glasses. So I thought, yeah, okay." So uh, when they came in, I tried them on. I looked at them in the mirror. And I said, yeah, they're different. They make me look kind of interesting. But what was interesting is when I got into uh, 11th grade, I had a a literature teacher. His name was Enrico Elmiranti, and he was a cool guy. I mean, he had a swagger about him, and he's a good-looking guy, great sense of humor, and a good teacher, and he loved poetry. And I did, too. I really did. My dad and I used to read it back and forth when I was sick, and uh, he liked Robert Service, face on the barroom floor, cremation of Sam McGee, and, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, "Sweet Lenore, knock, knock, knocking at my door," "The Raven." And I liked those poets, but I really liked liked uh, Robert Frost. And we, he said, Larry, let's memorize some poems. That's good for your for your mind to memorize stuff. So uh, every couple of weeks, we'd memorize a poem. So I had memorized three Robert Frost poems. And one of them was uh, stopping by woods on a snowy evening. And one day in uh, Mr. Elmarani's class, we were studying Robert Frost. And, uh, and Mr. Elmirani knew that I liked Frost. and I was sitting way in the back of the class. and. He said, Larry, uh, stand up at your desk and read Stopping by Woods on a snowy evening. Well, I didn't like reciting in class. You know, I was nervous. I just didn't like it. So he said, Larry, read the poem. Well, I was hesitating and fidgeting back and forth. And he said, Larry, read the damn poem. I said, geez, don't have a hernia and a hemorrhoid about it. So, but I swear, this is a long time ago, but I remember it. I could feel something go through my body. It relaxed me, almost electric. It was amazing. Uh, I sort of relaxed. I was still kind of chuckling to myself when he was telling me to read the damn poem. So I figure, well, if I'm going to crash, I might as well go down in flames. So I walked up to the front of the class. I walk right by Bob Phillips. He's my best friend. Uh, He's born in Scotland. I left my book on my desk. He said, Lottie, you forgot your book. You want to borrow mine? I said, I don't need it, Bob. So I stood in front of the class, and I looked out at the kids, and I thought, what the hell? These kids are no better than I am. And I said, uh, stopping by woods on a snowy evening by Robert Frost, whose woods these are, I think I know his houses in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds a sweep of easy wind and downy flake, so beautiful. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep, miles to go before I sleep. I walk back to my desk thinking rather proudly of myself. But we had this dance in school. It was uh, Sadie Hawkins' dance. It's where the girls can invite the guys. I had never got an invitation. But Norma Newell, she was in our lit class. She was one of the girls that called me Fish Face. She asked me to go to the Sadie Hawkins dance. I said, yeah, sure. And then a couple days later, Nancy Lucas... uh, She was in that lit class too. She's the prettiest girl. If I got within ten feet of her, I would blush. (laughs) Yeah, other things too. (laughs) So I know these are small things, you know. But it was a turning point in my life. Uh, the poetry thing in Mr. Elmrani's class and getting two invitations to go to the Sadie Hawkins dance. Uh, They're small things, but sometimes little things are uh, the most important things in your life. And uh, I never looked back. I didn't have a whole lot to look back to, except I had two great parents and a couple of really cool brothers. But the thing I remember most about polio... When I was seven, Dr. Scott came into my room and said, Larry, the polio virus has finally decided to leave your body. What do you say we take your braces off? So I said, yeah. uh, So he took them off and set me on the floor next to my bed, and he said, see if you can walk over to your mother. So I stumbled across the floor and fell into her lap, but I could feel my legs. I could feel my legs under me, and I knew I could walk. My dad got home from work. My mouth's dry. He said, Larry, what do you say? I well, didn't say that. He, he went up and got my like, braces. He took them out in the backyard, and he built a fire. And when the fire got going, he laid the braces in the, in the fire And the three of us stood there watching the fire burn away the pieces of wood, rubber, and leather, just leaving a small pile of metal uh, and hinges. When the fire cooled, he dug a hole through the ashes, and he laid the braces in the hole. And a couple days later, he planted a tree in that hole. And over the years, I saw that tree grow straight and tall. As I imagined the roots winding their way down through the pieces of metal that used to be my braces. Thank you.
0: In our next story, Jen Loop finds that trying to remotely audition for choir while in rural Alaska can be easily derailed by a very chatty handyman. (laughs)
3: Almost all of last August in rural Alaska, um, a very small town north of Juneau. I went up there in a way to save myself. I was lucky that I had an opportunity and a place to go and I did some work there. Um, But I was dealing with a lot back here. And so I was I was overwhelmed with work and a lot of emotional struggles. And so this was an escape, but also a a place where I could, you know, feel a little bit more peaceful and get some forward momentum. Now, what I didn't realize is what I really needed was a different pace of life. And this town offered that. It's a town of 2,000 to 3,000 people. Uh, It took me a few weeks driving around before I even noticed they don't have a stoplight. There's nothing mechanical that is making this, you know, the pace of life go on. Uh, they had internet and phones. However, they would cut out every few days because this was on the cruise ship circuit. And so every time like all the thousands of people would come into town, then you couldn't call people anymore. And so this was great though, because here I get very tense about schedules and like, you know, if you're late to something, you know, the person is a little upset with you. And up there, you know, the person that you're supposed to meet is probably like fishing or picking berries, and they're all okay with that. And you know, you have your own life, and there's a sense of community, and everything was was really, really good. Um, and it took me a while to ease into it, but um, the one thing I had to do on a schedule for back here, I'm in a choir in NMC, and I had to record an audition. And since I was gonna miss it, um, I was allowed to send in a recording. This was all internet-based, a very cool program, but I was, I was getting more anxious about this, because I knew I needed it when I came back, because this is one of these things that um, I value in my life, and yet I'm like, okay, what if the internet goes out, and I don't know how to use this program, and she doesn't even have a piano, and I was living in this house with a couple, a very good friend, um, one room, little cabin, not like hand-hewn, but it was, it was a small little space, <laughs> and... Um, and I was in the loft. They had given me their bed. And this is how awkward I am. For an entire month. And I, I could not get them off the couch with their dogs. They had let me use their bed. And I, this is wonderful. I, I couldn't have appreciated it more, but I, I had no tools to really say, okay, you guys could probably have your bed back. I don't know. So I had to record this audition and I'm like, I'm not sure how I'm going to do this. I got a little piano app on my iPhone. Technology is great. And then I have my little tablet. and you know You can record this with a practice track and all this and I planned to do this because I'm a procrastinator on the day it was due and so um I had this all planned out and I was going to do this while they were both at work so no one had to hear me sing I, I love singing and I've done this my entire life but that's why I'm in choir I don't do this by myself I didn't need to entertain her with this and so I had this all planned and I'm like getting everything together the night before and she's like well, okay, but Gene's coming over to repair the washer, uh, the washing machine tomorrow, and so he. This is the local handyman, and really nice guy, um, but now I'm getting anxious because I'm like, how am I supposed to record this while well, he's here? And you know, I'm getting all stressed out. And um, he had been there a week or so before. And another thing with this sense of community and, and pace of life, you know, if someone comes over to do something like this, you sit down and you have coffee, and you offer them tea and all of this. And I'm like, okay, well. This is going to take some time out of my day, but I'll deal with this. Um, and so the next day, I had been there a few weeks, so I was much more peaceful. Um, the next day, Gene came over, and he thought he did a fix, and he had to sit and wait for the, the cycle to go through. So I'm like, okay, now we're going to chat, and this is okay. Okay. Um, and so he starts out with his forays into local politics. He was a native person um, but and and had been pretty high up in some of the other small towns. And this, this was very fascinating. I really like getting to know people on this level when I'm prepared for it and in a good space. Um, it's usually my preferred interaction. I'm very bad at small talk and um, just kind of casual acquaintances. I like to know people. So this was going well um, until he got into... Yes, then I got out of politics because there are some really bad people in the world and really you know the end of the world is coming, right? And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, sometimes I think about that too because, you know, who doesn't? Um, But he ended up, he was going to try to save me. And I have nothing disparaging to say about anyone's religion. I really respect and appreciate people that think about things outside of themselves, whether it's spirituality or you know, um, some kind of, you know, just reverence for nature. This was not the problem. I was raised Christian, but I, I don't really affiliate a lot with that. The difficulty became when it was an hour later and I didn't know how to get out of this conversation. He said a lot of really wonderful things, you know, things that I probably needed to hear because, of course, when I was escaping, you know, there were things I needed to come to terms with in my past, and he was extremely positive. This was not... You know, he was worried about doomsday, but he was sure I would be okay as long as I did the things that I needed to do according to his religion. I'm like, okay, um, and I can be, you know, pretty polite, and I'm like, okay, we're gonna get out of this, and I'm gonna respect him, and he's feeling moved, which is great. You know, um, that's his that's his piece, and but all oh, the the whole time, I'm sitting here looking at my computer, like I need to do something, um, and so eventually, I I mentioned that okay, I have to record this audition for my life back home, and he's, his eyes lit up, and he's like, this is wonderful, you need to use your talents for the good of the world, and I'm like, yes, I know, but like, I need to do that now. And, um, and it, it did end fairly peacefully, you know, I, I was respectfully listening to him, and he was okay. And he left, and I, deep breath, and I'm like, now I'm gonna learn this song, and we're all gonna meet and then the door opened again, and he came back in with with papers this time and you know things that he had kept in the car like these reverses that he had a lot of attachment to and I, again it was very flattering that he wanted me to to hear this but in my line of work I'm very attuned and just in my life in general to people's behavior and you know the psychology of how you interact with people and I was looking at myself just shutting down because I I was annoyed I was annoyed that I was annoyed with him I was annoyed that I couldn't get out of this and I, you know, I turned my body away from him. I stopped making eye contact. I kept looking at my computer, you know, trying to make this very clear because my social skills aren't enough to be like, I respect you. Thank you. Goodbye. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> it just aren't there. And, uh, so eventually he kind of got the message, But I'm just like looking at myself and I'm like, this is a very basic, if you're talking to someone and this person acts like this with you, like I would have, I would have been running out of there hours ago. So, three hours later, um, and really, he just kept going, and it was all very positive, nothing about it was, you know, judging me or anything, and, and that, was, that was fine, um, he did finally leave, and I had my little verses, and that was great, told me to read them, okay, um, I ended up doing my audition at the animal shelter there after Tracy and her husband were home, so I could get that done, and um, I was discussing this with her afterwards, the person I was staying with, and she's a wonderfully spiritual person. Their house has a lot of um, nature kind of connectivity things. A lot of feathers. They collect bones on the beach when they do their tide walks. Um, and, and she looked at me and she's like, well, Gene's never tried to save us. And I was like, well, I, maybe that was his way in, you know. Like I was the new person and so then he was going to get you because you're part of his community. So that kind of makes sense. Um, but I was thinking about that and I was I was thinking about, yeah, I guess that's kind of flattering. You saw something in me that you thought the world needed, and that, that is great. Um, <laughs> but it, it gave me this idea, since I've always been so anxious and overanalyzing and I'm always thinking about how I'm interacting with people and what they're thinking and what I'm thinking, and at least it's given me an ability to get get myself out of those situations mentally where I can sit and think I am getting something out of this. And... He's getting something out of this, and even though I'm horribly uncomfortable, there's still something that can be taken away. And so tonight I'm cheersing Gene because in a way he did save me from certain things that I was dealing with, even if it wasn't exactly what he thought he needed to save me for. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Nancy Baker knew her father-in-law was careful with his money, but he still managed to surprise her in just how thrifty he could be.
4: So, when I was a high school teacher, I used to get the biggest pushback from my students when I taught The Grapes of Wrath. Now, it's a 30-chapter novel, I get it. I remember looking out at my uh, class the first day that I handed out the copies, and one kid, I still remember his name is Peter, sat in the front and he was holding it out at arm's length like it was a cinder block. And he goes, What did this guy get paid by the pound? You know, it's a big book, I understand. But probably what didn't help it also was the topic. And you know, when you're 16, you have certain topics that are really fun for you. One of them is not the depression. And this isn't just a book that slogs through 30 chapters of the Depression. It's the Great Depression. So, um, and in a word, that topic is depressing. So I understood it. But, you know, that time period isn't exactly ancient history, even though my students sort of thought it was. And many people who are still alive walking this earth experience the Depression. And one of those is my father-in-law, Bob. Now, um, he particularly bears the scars of this very, very troubling time. He's the son of Dutch immigrants. Um, His father, with a few belongings, a wife and two children, came over from Leiden in 1921 on a boat filled with tulip bulbs. And they landed in Boston. And he somehow made his way to Michigan. Um, By 1930, um, my father-in-law Bob had come along. Um, The family had uh, managed to buy a small house, Uh, his father, Jacobus, had found a job, and they were sort of living the immigrant dream. However, by 1932, Bob's two infant brothers, his 10-year-old sister and his 36-year-old mother, were all um, buried in the... uh, Grace Lawn Cemetery in Flint, Michigan. So things were not going very well for the family, obviously. So Bob's father, in a terrible, desperate attempt to keep his job at Fisher Body and his family together, which now consisted of six children, he switched to the night uh, work, the night shift, so he could be home during the day as much as possible. He put his eldest, his 12-year-old daughter, Eleanor, in charge of her younger siblings, and then he did something else. He gave Bob away to a person who, lit, who worked on the line with him, who couldn't have children of his own, and he was a very nice man named Leon Cornell and his wife Pearl. Uh, they said that if he couldn't handle the one and a half year old now that he didn't have a wife, that they would gladly take him and raise them as, as his, as theirs. So Bob grew up with the love of these new parents. Not even realizing until he was an adolescent that that group of five blonde, blue-eyed kids who lived across town with a funny Dutch name, who he ran into sometimes at the Fisherbody family picnic or the Sunday or Saturday matinee, were actually his siblings. But he went to college, he got married um, to Sally, a girl from Midland, um, and that he did a short stint in the Korean War. And he got on with his life, and you know knew that he was loved, and he had a family of his own. Bob is now 85 years old, but he is still very much a child of the Depression. And one of the vestiges of that time is that he is extremely frugal. And it's a trait kind of fueled by this nagging feeling that maybe those times might come around again um, and make people do desperate things, like give away their children. Maybe the frugality is in his DNA. After all, he is Dutch. And if you are traveling in Europe and you say, I don't want to spend any money in restaurants and hotels, and instead I eat bread and cheese on park benches and people watch and I camp, that is actually calling traveling Dutch style. And we all know what Dutch means in the United States when you go on a date. My husband, who is the descendant of these Dutch people, and I, we call it our first date was a double Dutch because we each paid for our own Heinekens. So um, that was really awesome. So um, when Bob traveled with his family, he definitely traveled Dutch style. So for example, every summer he would take his whole family up to the Georgian Bay in Canada where they would rent a small shack And it was just perfect because it was this economical vacation away from any kind of temptation of luxury and spending. And you basically made your family fish for their free lunch and dinner all week long. (laughs) So every year they had this long, arduous journey up to the Georgian Bay. And the three boys would sit in the back seat and do the things that three boys did in the 1960s before. There were things like iPads, like punch each other in the arm and play license plate bingo, until they would finally get just you know miserable and start to say, can we please stop somewhere? Well, in Bob's world, there were no stops. There was no wasted time, there was no air conditioning, it was a hell-bent baton death march towards Canada. <laughs> Come hell or high water, we're gonna get there and maybe we'll stop for gas, maybe. But they would every year say, can't we please stop somewhere, Dad? And what they would always ask for was the same thing. They would say, can we stop for Dairy Queen? And it would go like this. Hey, Dad, 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 can we stop for Dairy Queen? We're all really hungry. It's really hot back here. It's on exit 30, the billboard just said. Can we stop there, please? And Bob would say, oh, okay, guys, exit 30, fine. Okay, Dad, so that was exit 28 that we just passed. Get over in the right lane, because it's going to be coming up in two more exits. Okay, boys, I'm putting on my... I'm going into the right... Okay. Okay, Dad, that was exit 29. Put your signal on. The exit 30 is coming up. There it is. Look, guys, there it is. There it Dad! Dad! Oh! Oh, I'm sorry, boys. Was that exit 30? Oh, I'm so sorry, maybe next year. <laughs> there was never a next year at Dairy Queen on any road trip of Bob's. <laughs> Years later, again at school, uh, when uh, my now husband and I had had a lot of library time and he decided that it was time <laughs> that I meet his family, He said, hey, you know what, my family's driving up, and then they're going up to Canada, where we always go fish. And And he said, they really want to meet you, because they know that we've been dating for a few months. Um, So they want to take you out for dinner. So in the early 1980s, if you attended school at one of the uh, large state schools here in uh, Michigan... You went to Pretzel Bell if your parents were paying, which is probably the worst name for a fine dining restaurant I have ever heard, because as far as I could it they had no pretzels, and it was nothing like Taco Bell. I don't know why it was called that, but <laughs> that's where we went. So we were there having Pretzel Bell, and we were enjoying this nice meal, and, but when, when the waiter came over and said, does anyone want any coffee or dessert, Bob shooed him away in disgust, like, no, no, just a check. Like, the guy was asking if we wanted after-dinner bong hits or something. (laughs) So I thought, what was up with that? Like, clearly no one's having anything other than their meal. And um, so we go out into the parking lot, and we're exchanging our, like, nice-to-meet-you niceties. And Bob looks at me, and he goes, did you notice I used my credit card for that? I said, well, no, I didn't, sir, you know. Um, But great. And he said, well, you know, when I use my credit card there's a chance that either the restaurant or the credit card will screw up and Missy, that meal will be free. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I didn't really understand the depth of Bob's parsimony until Pearl, his adoptive mother, who had um, been really the only mother that he ever knew since his mom died when he was like a year and a half old, she passed away, and something very weird happened in the family. Bob and his wife, Sally, and my husband's youngest brother, Bob, uh, Rob, were all living in Washington DC at the time. And Grammy Cornell, as she was known, was in her late 80s, and she was there in a nursing home prior to her passing away. So my husband and I got our call. We received a call that Grammy has passed away, and we get the plan. Um, Bob and Sally and Rob are all going to get in the car and they're going to drive to Traverse City because um, the funeral is going to be in Traverse City and Grammy Cornell wants to be buried in the Cornell family plot in Buckley. And we said, okay, we're really, really sorry for the loss and we'll be up there and let's all meet at at a hotel somewhere in Traverse City and we're happy to pick you up at the airport. Well, Bob was like, there is no freaking way that... um, He's going to buy three round-trip tickets at the last minute in peak season July for his family to come out there. Um, And, you know, why spend a few dollars when you can put everyone into the car, pack a, a cooler full of warming sandwiches, and drive 760 miserable miles in one day? So that was the plan. So my husband and I drove up from Chicago, and we met at the hotel as planned. And we pulled in, and just a minute later, this big car pulls in. And, you know, meeting up when there are um, funeral arrangements is never easy. It's never fun. But we noticed as they pulled in that they were driving a large white conversion van. And I looked at it, and I could tell it was them driving it. And I went, huh. I said, when did they buy a conversion van? And my husband goes, they didn't. They don't have a conversion van. So Bob gets out of the conversion van, and he's got this strange, determined look on his face, and he won't make eye contact with us. (laughs) Sally gets out of the other side and throws us a look that can only be summed up by, wine, please, now. (laughs) So my husband says, where's Rob? Did he end up not coming? Um, Without a word, Bob goes around to the back of the conversion van and opens up the big back doors and out comes Rob bundled up in fleece. My husband looks at me and goes, what is going on? Why are you in fleece? It is 90 degrees. Why are you in this van? there aren't even any seats back there he goes oh my god did you ride in the back of the van in that broken lawn chair that dad bought at a yard sale for a nickel and rob looks at it and goes and thus ends the ride from hell and then we look and that's when we saw the box It was a sturdy cardboard box about seven feet long and about three feet square. It was the kind of box you might put golf clubs in to go to Hawaii. Only there was no trip to Hawaii. And there were no golf clubs. Grammy Cornell was in the box. So You know, you can look at this story two ways. Either what we have here is an incredibly frugal man who did not want to spend the money, which is thousands of dollars on a one-way shipment of a body, um, and that... Maybe he personally bribed an undertaker in D.C. to illegally release an unembalmed corpse, put it in a box, rent a van, and drive like a bat out of hell across the country with the A.C. crank before Grammy spoiled... We later heard that the mortician in Traverse City met him with an expression on his face of astonishment that um, (laughs) was similar to one that might be if you had smuggled plutonium out of (laughs) Virginia. Or the other way you can look at it is that the depression has some lasting effects on people. (laughs) Maybe Bob just wanted to be with his mom a little bit longer. one final act of kindness and love, one final road trip with the woman who took him in and loved him as her own, during a tragic time where actually a quarter of a million children were left to fend for themselves. You know, Steinbeck talked about this and he said there are two effects to what had happened there in the 30s. And he said, the people in flight, strange things happened to them. Some bitterly cruel, and some so beautiful that faith was refired forever. And I would like to think that Bob came out of the depression, maybe a little bitter, but that his faith was mostly refueled. But I'll bet that even on that final fast road trip, though he dearly loves his family, that he did not stop for ice cream.
0: Crystal Frost Anderson discovered that there is so much awkwardness in visiting a prison for the first time.
5: So I was talking to my brother on the phone in August, and that's not unusual. I talked to my brother on the phone quite a bit. Um, But we had been missing each other quite a bit. I hadn't seen him in about six months. And uh, he was very much like, when are you going to come see me? And I said, you know what, what are you doing Labor Day weekend? And he said, nothing, because he's in prison. So I was like, well, yeah, that was a stupid question to ask. You got time on Labor Day weekend, buddy? Uh, So I decided that I was going to take a trip Labor Day weekend to the UP to see my brother. And, uh, of course, being that I'm a good sister, I also make my little sister come with me on said trip, and um, I didn't really know what to expect visiting a prison because, you know, I think I, I have ideas about it from, you know, stories and, and watching television shows and things like that, and you're like, okay, uh, this is not going to be good it's prison. It's not great. So I do a lot of Google searches. I realize that I actually have to get clearance from the state of Michigan to go be a visitor at a prison. So I'm like, wow, there's a lot of work involved to do this. Um, I do get the said clearance. Everything goes okay. And we decide that we're going to leave really early in the morning. Because the thing about prison visitation is that once you get there, kind of like prison, you have to stay. Like, you can't just leave. I couldn't be like, well, hey, buddy, your 30 minutes are up, Um, now I'm gonna go to Taquamenon Falls. That just doesn't work for the guy that's like, I haven't seen anybody else in six months. So um, I decide that we're gonna have to do the whole day, because they don't kick you out of visitation in prison. Um, It starts at 10 a.m. And it ends at 8 p.m. And as long as there's not a huge line of people, you get to stay the entire day. So that's exactly what we set out to do. We got in the car very early, uh, my sister and I. And we didn't really talk about what we were going to do the whole way. So it was kind of awkward. It was like, oh, so how have you been? What's new with you? What's going on? Oh, isn't the br- it's bridge is beautiful. The UP is beautiful. It's gorgeous. And yet, right about... I don't know, 30 miles or so outside of Newberry, I'm going, well, there should be some sign that says do not pick up hitchhikers at some point, right? (laughs) Like, that's going to happen because that's what I've seen in the movies, and I'm pretty sure that that is what's going to happen. So we are like, yeah, sure, we're going to be seeing that soon. And instead, we get into Newberry, and there it is gas station, school, fire station, prison. Right there. And I say, well, the building is quite lovely. (laughs) And my sister looks at me, kind of like the way that you look at somebody who's who's really trying to make the best of a kind of shitty situation. She just sort of looks at me, and then I turn the corner and I see the yard and a lot of people in the yard. I say, there they are. Oh, look at them. (laughs) (laughs) Like we're going to the zoo. And my sister says, do you think he's in there? To which I respond, well, I hope so. Because otherwise, we have a very much larger problem on our hand. And then as we're parking in the, uh, in the parking lot of the Newberry Correctional Facility, we just start to laugh. My sister has this issue that when she gets nervous, she um, she gets a lot of gas. <sighs> like a lot of gas. So... As we're going through the checklist, because I did a lot of Google searches here on what you're supposed to do and not do in prison, I'm like, I don't think you can wear that hoodie in prison. I read something, and she's like, where did you read that? I'm like, on the government page, and I don't think you can wear that hoodie. She's like, I I only have a tank top under this, and I'm like, I'm wearing yoga pants. Who wears yoga pants to a men's prison? I don't even know what I'm doing. We're both, like crazy people in the parking lot of the Newberry Correctional Facility, and she's farting <laughs> constantly. <laughs> and it's just, it's like we, got, we gotta go in, we have to go in, we have to. There were a few things that my brother asked for when we decided to take this trip. He said, please bring some money. Apparently there are vending machines. He's never had a visitor, so he didn't know, but he's heard stories that there are vending machines from the visiting room and that uh, all he wanted was a soda and some chips. So I was like, all right, I'll bring a bunch of cash. Because I was thinking that prison might be a little like Disneyland (laughs) in that everything would be really, really expensive. So I have like $80 in cash for these vending machines and we get into the room, and it's, like, it's the front office, and it actually is a lovely building. It really is. It's beautiful. And um, I come up to the front desk, and there's a, a wonderful man who is sitting there, probably realizing that he has a couple of you know newbies on his hands. And I said, I would like to see a prisoner, please. And he says, without missing a beat... Well, we have a few. (laughs) Did you have one in mind? So I regroup in my yoga pants. My sister walks away for a minute farting. I said, yes, we need to see our brother. Um, And he asks for the appropriate ID. I'm like, we did this stuff online. But in the back of my mind, And this is something that I hadn't talked about because for fear it may may come true. I was actually thinking, you know, you have to send a lot of personal information into the state, and what if they find out that maybe I blacked out somewhere along the way and I did something really, really bad, and then they have to keep me. Like, these are things that go through your mind. Like, what if I have to stay here forever? thankfully, it was not the case, but um, he says, okay, you're going to want to get a vending machine card. I say, good, I have this money, and I throw out like $80 on the table, and he's like, ma'am, I can't take your money. You have to buy a vending machine card in a vending machine, and I'm like, cool, I have money. I can." No, it only takes quarters, Aww. so I was like, who has quarters, and then I'm like, Did I, why am I so bad at this? And he says, it's okay to be bad at this. (laughs) So he says, I'm sure you noticed the gas station across the street, they can probably get you some quarters, but I'm not supposed to give you any sort of advice in your prison visit. So my sister and I leave the prison. We go back to the gas station. We ask for some quarters. Unfortunately, we didn't ask for how many quarters to get. So we have like handfuls of quarters. (laughs) And we walk back in, and we're like, we're here. We have the quarters. He then says, all right, get your vending machine card. You can use cash to actually put money on the card. And that is a different machine over here. And I say, "Okay, I've got this. We've got this down. And then he says, you're going to need a locker for all your stuff. And I'm like, well, duh, Crystal, why do you think that you can bring in cell phones and cameras and all of this stuff in your (laughs) purse to the prison, I thought I did my research, I clearly did not. So we have to get a locker, everything is good, and we're ready to go in. My sister is getting really nervous now because this is the part we did read a lot about. And you know, when you go to visit a prison, it's not like if you go to visit say a jail where you have to pick up a phone and then you get 30 minutes. You actually get into the prison so you have to go through the searches. And they actually like, put you into this room, and a woman has to search all of the other women. A man searches the other men. You have to take, off your, you take out your hair. You have to take out your hat. You have to um, account for every piece of jewelry, jewelry you're wearing. You should not make jokes at that point. <laughs> like, you won't let me bring my rubies in here? Not okay. Because that corrections officer was not having any of it. You have to take off your shoes and show the bottom of your feet. Then you have to apologize for the bottom of your feet. (laughs) And you finally get in. And there's an eerie feeling about when you finally get in because you go through the metal detector, you go through all the checks. They have accounted for everything on your body, earrings and rings and everything else. You give them your identification and you walk in. And then the door buzzes and slams behind you. And then I was like, oh shit, this is really, really real. My brother is in prison and he hears that every day. And now I have to go talk to him. (laughs) And my sister's like, I think we've made a big mistake. (laughs) And I said, it's okay, we have no time to turn back now, because we walk into a room with about 20 tables full of families and prisoners, and there's my brother. And he looks good. Like, he's tall already, he's tan, he's strong. And I'm like, what, what have you, been, you're working out and getting sun? Like, what are, what are you doing? You look better in prison than you have ever looked in your entire life. And I'm going, can I hug him? Someone tell me, can I hug him? And they're like, okay, calm down. You can have one hug at the beginning, one hug at the end. We sit down after the embrace, and then I was like, so how's it going? (laughs) Like, how do you start a conversation at that point? But we did talk. We spent 10 hours in that place talking. And he told me a lot of really interesting things And I think the most awkward thing about that incredibly awkward situation was how incredibly normal it was when we were talking. I remember thinking, this is my brother, and it's just like we're at home, except he can't stand up, and he has to keep his hands on the table. And periodically, a corrections officer will come through and pat people down. At the end of this conversation, though, he mentions to me that uh, he is joining a band. (laughs) He's joining a band. (laughs) And I was like, wait, what? He auditioned for a band. And I said, please tell me the name of your band is Hard Time. (laughs) And he of course said, no, we're not guilty. again, the jokes were rolling through. It was, it was this intense, intense moment. Everything. We're playing Scrabble together, and uh, one of the other prisoners is asking if we want our picture taken in front of the mural of Tequamanon Falls, and it's just so surreal and unbelievable, And yet it was happening in that moment, and I was enjoying it. I was actually enjoying spending time with my brother until it was 8 o'clock. And then we all have to get up, the few remaining people who have made it the marathon prison visit. And they place the inmates on a bench, and they are supposed to sit there while the uh, visitors have to go through another check. Every time you left, if you had to use a bathroom, you had to have another check. You really get used to this kind of invasiveness. And he was um, sitting on the bench and I was um, looking back, just looking at him as we're walking out. And as I'm looking at him, the door closes again and it buzzes and you hear the slam. And I remember something that he told me early on about this very interesting world. He said, everything inside is happening. We know everything that's happening outside. You have no idea what's going on inside. It is a bubble. And he said, the most awkward thing that I've had to face, though, just just remember this, is that I just don't know how to explain Facebook to the people who have been here for 30 years. <laughs> Thank you.
0: isn't certain, but Stephen Hole tells us that he thinks he may have committed a serious etiquette breach at a storytelling conference.
6: A number of years ago, I got interested in storytelling, and for some reason, it just like opened new worlds, worlds to me, and I started studying storytelling at workshops and what have you at different places around the country. And after having told stories and learned about stories, um, kind of in this area, I decided that I wanted to go to Boston, where there was a big storytelling conference called Sharing the Fire. And um, it was neat to go to a big city, get out of here and see something different. And there were a lot of kind of well-known storytellers in that world. I was scheduled to tell a story that I had written in a workshop there, and um, I was excited about it, but before I got to tell my story at the workshop, um, I was able to attend some other workshops at that conference, and so the first workshop that I went to that day was called, um, First You Listen, and Then You Tell. And I thought that that sounded really good. That sounded like an equitable thing, that I would listen for a while, and then I would get a chance to tell my story. You know, and since I had sort of discovered storytelling, I mean, it had been it had been a way of making sense of kind of a crazy life. It was a way that um, put some meaning and some order into my crooked path, and so, I was really motivated to tell stories. Um, and so I entered, and the presenter was a pretty well-known storyteller from Toronto, and he came and he stood at the front of the, of the lecture hall, and um, he was a slight man with dark hair, and he held a colorful stick It was about that long, brightly colored, and it was decorated with crystals and copper beads. And he introduced himself and this talking stick, and he said it had been given to him by some First Nations storytellers for purposes just like this, where whoever holds the stick holds the floor and has the sort of the right to speak. And it's a way of kind of conferring order and honor in that in that moment. So he talked about that. And then he began his story. He began talking about Gilgamesh and how Gilgamesh was the oldest uh, story written in literature and how traces of Gilgamesh appeared in folk tales in Europe, Asia, Africa, on and on. And it was all kind of fascinating, but I was also waiting for him to pause and give the rest of us in this group our turn to speak as well. And yet he continued on about Gilgamesh this and Gilgamesh that. And I started thinking, you know, I don't know if the rest of us are going to have an opportunity to tell our stories or not. And... It went on and it went on and I was thinking about how, you know, sometimes you needed to just um, lose your way and step forward into that place where you've lost your way and to just do something different. And so I had this idea and I just said, well, I'm going to just ask for that stick. And so I raised my hand and I said, excuse me, may, may I hold that stick? And he looked at me and he was like he was kind of surprised, but he said, he came over and he handed me the stick. And I had seen talking sticks. I knew how they worked. And I said, you know, I don't know Gilgamesh from Pot Roast. But I do know something about the healing power of stories. And all of a sudden, it felt like my my foolish tongue had just taken over. And I started my spiel about how I had spent years at 12-step tables. And I had listened to people tell their stories over and over again until they no longer needed to tell them. And they moved on. And I told them about how I had you know, been in therapy so long that trying to discover my story and trying to put it forward and that I didn't know anything about Gilgamesh, but I was here to tell you that I knew something about storytelling and the power of healing stories. And I looked around and there were a a couple of friendly faces. There was a smile here and a smile there, but mostly there was murder in those eyes of people looking at me. And I watched a small, wiry woman stand up, and she kind of stomped over to me, and she looked up at me, and she said, we don't want to hear your stories. We want to hear about Gilgamesh. (laughs) (laughs) And I looked at her, and I was just filled with this righteousness, and I said, but I still have the stick. And her face kind of twisted as if it was filled with bile. And then she just kind of turned and slunk back to her seat. Well, I said a few more words, but I kind of ran out of things to say, and I just gave the stick back to the presenter, and I sat down. And he studied me for a moment. And he turned and he said, Now where were we? Uh, Gilgamesh. And he continued for another 20 minutes talking about variants of Gilgamesh this and Gilgamesh that. And in my chair, I just kind of sunk into this. I melted into this mass of shame and embarrassment embarrassment and I felt like such a complete fool it was like how had I misread this whole situation so completely you know didn't I mean the workshop said first you listen and then you tell I mean this wasn't that what we were doing and he just droned on and on and I just I felt terrible I felt like such a complete idiot Finally, you know, the workshop came to the end and everyone was filing out of the room into the hallway. And I followed, you know, I I emerged into the hall and then I saw this woman, this short woman with long gray hair and she was beaming at me. She looked at me and she said, you did it, babe, you did it. (laughs) You broke through the veil and you claimed your own story. And she came up and she gave me a big hug. I was astonished. I didn't realize it at that moment, but I had found a kindred spirit.
0: Bonnie's first day hosting a show at a New England aquarium didn't go as smoothly as she'd hoped.
7: So I fumbled in the dark for the knob and my boots were slipping on the deck a little. When I found it I gave it a quarter turn and I heard a familiar thunk and the mechanical vibration under my feet as the door started to open underwater a hush fell over the room, and I felt a really strong moment of pride and exhilaration. The first two shows of the lifetime dream job had been beautiful, and I was pretty sure that this one was going to be the same. The rectangle of light underwater started to get bigger as the door opened further, and then suddenly a dark shape filled the light. The 900-pound animal entered the show pool, the lights came up, the music went wild, the audience went crazy, and the giant came to the surface and porpoised out and into the water, out and into the water, hardly making a splash. I stepped back and gave a proud tweet to my whistle, and he joined me on stage, and we stood there soaking up the admiration and the applause, me and my sea lion partner, Guthrie. Now, I've always loved animals. From the very first time somebody asked me what I wanted to be when I grow up, I said, I want to be a veterinarian. I mean, what's not to love, right? You get to pet puppies and play with kittens and hang out with baby horses all day. It's gonna be awesome, right? (laughs) When I was nine, my mom set up a uh, opportunity for me to shadow a vet, and so I was super excited. I would get to spend a day with a veterinarian doing what veterinarians do. It was gonna be awesome. It was horrible. Veterinarians do get to hang out with animals all day, but they get to hang out with animals on their worst day. They're sick, they're scared, they feel crappy, and sometimes they die. This was not the kind of animal partnership that I wanted. I wanted a partnership where like the dog and I would slap paws and be the dynamic duo. And being a vet was certainly not that. So I went into education. I became a, right, of course. I went and became a um, special needs teacher, and after about two years, I wanted a little bit more. And I was gonna go to graduate school to further my education to work with kids, and then I went to visit SeaWorld. Now, during the morning dolphin show, I thought to myself, oh, being an animal trainer would be kinda cool. During the lunchtime sea lion show, that little piece of my nine-year-old brain that had abandoned a career with animals kinda woke up. And then by the end of the afternoon sea lion sh- or killer whale show, it was decided I was gonna be an animal trainer. Now the beauty is sometimes in life things just line up and that was the case here. All the education and learning principles that I had gotten to be a teacher were exactly what I needed to be an animal trainer. So really all I needed was a little exposure, a job opening and some luck. Now, I lived in Boston at the time, and there's one of the premier world um, aquatic facilities there, and they happen to have volunteer openings. So I went in and worked my butt off. I thawed and bucketed and weighed and cleaned up after hundreds of thousands of pounds of feeder fish. I scrubbed hallways and the show pool and the pens and all of that. I I knew I needed to pay my dues. And so I went in two to three times a week, and I worked my butt off and just... Also watched every training session and every show I possibly could then one day I was working in the booth because you also worked the booth and did the music and the sound for the shows and one of the Trainers was talking to me over the radio and he said did you hear Kim's getting married. She's going to North Carolina Kim was a trainer Kim was leaving Now long story short. I got Kim's job. Yeah, right? Um, so You know, it was my dream job. I was gonna get to partner with animals to show the world how great they were and show the world what an awesome world that we could live in and how to live, be better stewards of the earth. I mean, it was my dream job and I finally had it. So after three weeks of intensive training, here I was on stage with my sea lion co-star, my rubber boots and my special trainer whistle ready to inspire the world. Now, if you've ever worked with animals, you know that it doesn't always go exactly as you planned. But I was ready for that, right? I had a plan. I had a contingency plan if he decided to go in the water and swim around on the bottom of the pool, which they sometimes did. I had a plan if he did the wrong thing, or if I forgot a line, or if a mic went off, or the lights went off, whatever. I was ready. Nothing was gonna stand in my way of having an awesome show and inspiring the people, and just it, nothing was gonna stand in the way. I was ready for anything. And But the two shows that I had done before this, my first two shows had been flawless. So I was pretty sure this one was going to be perfect. We were going to be the dynamic duo that I always wanted, me and my animal friend. So the first portion of the show was about seals and sea lions. So I had him do a little roar because it's always very impressive and the audience likes that. It's a great way to say hi. Then we talked about his strong flippers. We talked about his big teeth and why they have long whiskers, which is so they can see In the dark water. Um, and all the while, Guthrie's doing all sorts of cute things to show about his fabulous parts. Now, I don't know whether Guthrie had a bad burrito the night before or what. Yeah. But as I turned to get the recycling bin so that Guthrie could show the kids what to do with empty uh, plastic bottles, I heard it. And I kind of hoped it was the big guy in the front row. But as I As I turned around and I saw Guthrie slinking into the water and I heard a gasp from the audience, I realized what had happened. The stage was completely covered in brown, runny sea lion poop. And then the smell hit me. The smell that can only come out of an animal who exclusively eats fish. And then the smell hit the audience. 500 people, most of them little kids on field trips. And then all hell broke loose Ew, from everywhere in the audience, every corner. The sight alone was enough to make you gag. The, the, the smell was life changing. And there I stood in my special rubber boots and my special whistle. No animal on the first day of my dream job with 30 gallons of fishy, stinky poop. Meanwhile, the smartest one in the room is swimming down on the bottom of the pool, far away from the chaos and the smell above. Now, I was ready for a lot that day, but this I had not considered. I had visions of changing the lives of these 500 budding biologists, and all they were going to take from this was the amount of poop that comes out of a 900-pound animal and the sound it makes when it does. (laughs) So I stood there for a sec, and I weighed my options I could run screaming from the auditorium and never come back. That was definitely my first thought. I could just end the show right there, or I could rinse the stage and just keep going, which is what I finally decided to do. I grabbed a bucket and a fresh round of "ew" came from the audience as I started to rinse the stage. And I stood up and laughed and said, oh, come on guys, it happens to the best of us. (laughs) What? Not only was I ankle deep in poop, but I was not inspiring anybody. (laughs) And I'm saying stupid shit like it happens to the best of us. I mean, in 30 or 40 years of performing, I've never pooped on the stage. I don't know about you. (laughs) So three more buckets of water and the stage was shiny white again. Three blasts to my whistle and Guthrie joined me back on stage and I swear to God, he was smiling. We finished the show without any more distractions. Guthrie redeemed himself with a beautiful high jump, ending the show th- in a thrilling way, splashing the front row. Everybody walked out all abuzz and all the great memories and the fun, gross story they were gonna tell their mom. And then, of course, the little jackass trailing everybody, but making farts with his elbow, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it was awesome. And as everybody finally left the room and I stood there in the empty auditorium, kind of debriefing from the special gift that Guthrie had given me that day, I realized that it, it actually kind of was a gift. I mean, at that point, I was pretty much ready for anything. <laughs> I've done a lot of presentations since then between animal shows and corporate presentations, educational workshops, and motivational speeches. And you know, before you get on stage tonight, you sit there worrying and all, listing out all the things that are going to go wrong, right? Anytime I take that list and compare it against 30 gallons of poop, <laughs> I feel better. Not much can derail me now, but I do, just in case, avoid seafood dinners the night before I have to perform. And every time I'm planning my outfit, I always, at least for a second, consider wearing rubber boots. Thank you.
0: In our last story, by Elon Cameron, it's the first day of college and there is so much promise in the air. What could possibly go wrong?
8: It's a bright fall day. It's the first day of school. It's the first day of college. It's my first day of college. I'm not really sure if it feels any different than high school, but just to be safe, Trisha is meeting me in front of the art building as a touch point. Thank you, Trisha. I'm wearing my birthday dress, an empire waist number with sleeves, my Dr. Martin's boots, and a short jacket. I'm listening to a mixtape I've been working on. The current title is, In the Absence of Self-Esteem, Listen to This. <laughs> Pictures of Matchstick men and uh, Superman by R.E.M., Where Is My Mind by The Pixies, songs that give me strength and hope, or just make me happy, because at 18... 1991. I need a full-blown pep rally to leave the house in the morning. But on this day, this day, I felt attuned. The subtle warmth of the sun, the temperate air. I'm walking to college. This isn't high school. I'm mildly delighted. I am slightly beaming. I cross at a major intersection and someone honks. They must be able to tell. I wave excitedly. This is clearly going to be a great day.
4: (laughs) Hey!
8: (laughs) Taking a short shortcut, I cross at the light, get more happy waves. (laughs) Hi! I'm going to college! someone even honked how did they know <laughs> I walk onto campus pausing and thinking I hope this is the moment that everything gets better <laughs> I felt that way honestly earnestly at the beginning of every school year no matter how horrific my current situation was like fourth grade sorry mom In the midst of my parents' dramatic and drawn out divorce, my house that my mother and I lived in burned to the ground. Two weeks later, school started. (laughs) And I was already getting A's and mastering the popularity puzzle, at least in my mind, (laughs) at least on the first day. The first day was magical, it could be anything. Maybe that's why I love January 1st and Rosh Hashanah so much, because New Year's Day has a special kind of magic to it. You can feel the potential of an entire year laying itself bare in possibility at your feet. My first year of college was pretty awful, in fact, peppered with a couple of minor successes and moments of good fortune, I published a couple of my photographs, I met my friend Shane, he was sitting in my friend Rachel's room and was like, why do you always smile at me? (laughs) And I just said, because I think I like you. And we've been friends ever since. So my undergrad experience was laced with major depressive episodes, a stint with agoraphobia that was super fun. and a daily generalized anxiety that I was completely unaware of and was entirely undiagnosed until my 30s. I know this now. I've done 12 years of therapy and seen many experts since then. (laughs) I have this hilarious paradoxical tendency because I'm endlessly optimistic and horribly disappointed pretty much all of the time. So perhaps that's just me being an immature jerk, but maybe in some way it's just the human experience. I'm not totally sure yet. But the first day of school has a special shield against disappointment, an immunity, perhaps. It's a day of promise, a day of starting fresh. Well-sharpened pencils, you're with me, I can feel it. Notepaper that sticks together when you crack the notebook open. And an outfit you believe in. So I'm wandering through campus, only excitement. There's no one I'm avoiding here. This is my school. My new school. And I'm a big kid now. And... It really felt that way. I really felt like I was marching into my bright future. People are happy here, smiling and laughing, continuing the fun, nodding to say hello, and it all feels pretty good. I like the campus, these tall, enormous trees, a strong natural presence. It feels comforting to be so small in time, reminded that we are but a moment to these barked giants. I walk past the library. I love libraries. <laughs> Continuing onward toward my destination, I am really grateful for Trisha. She is the kind of friend, yes, let's all have a round for Trisha Bowden. She is the kind of friend who will tell you it's going to be okay and then makes it okay. And it's not just that they're there, it's okay, kind of okay. It's like, okay, I've got a five-part plan, and this is how it's going to go, and you're going to be okay, and it's going to happen, or else I'm going to kill someone. And you're like, yes, I'm on board. <laughs> and so I've made it. My first checkpoint of my adult educational career. And I see Tricia... And I think, I wonder if I'll be a visiting professor here someday. I sure can imagine that. But Trisha's face is all twisted up in this laugh that looks like she's smelled something funny and awful. And she goes, oh, sweetheart, your dress is entirely tucked into your tights. (laughs) And with that, I think, if awkward isn't what it used to be, what does it mean if awkward's the new cool? Can we somehow retain our kindness? Can we preserve our compassion? Can we stay human when... Really, those dudes with the murder and the nerd, like when like we're the weird, nerdy ones who are like, well, like, actually, I mean, probably physics and stuff. Like what if like when if we're the cool ones, can we be cool about it? Like that's my request. Because if we can rise together as we reframe what's cool, then that's going to be really fucking cool. So
0: thanks. (laughs) Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to Mike Kurtz and Inside Out Gallery. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Thanks for listening.